Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Our sermon text this morning is in Hebrews 11. So we'll turn over to Hebrews 11 in just a moment. But first, I want to set the scene, the stage a little bit with Genesis chapter 12. I'll read verses 1 through 9. You see here the first encounter with our forefather, Abram. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Amen. Last Lord's Day in Hebrews 11, we were introduced to this figure, Noah. And when we looked back at his story, we noticed in Genesis this peculiar phenomenon. That God came to Noah. The ark wasn't Noah's idea, it was God's idea. And when God came to him, he spoke to Noah. And something that I called to our attention was the fact that Noah isn't recorded as responding. Throughout the story of Noah, he says very little. We have the same phenomenon here. Here's the opening story. Here's Abram, our great father in the faith. Now the Lord said to Abram. That's it. There's God, there's Abram, and God talks to Abram. He gives him a command. Go. Abram goes. Abram arrives in the land and God shows up again. The Lord appeared to Abram. There's that key phrase throughout the life of Abram. The Lord appeared to Abram. And he says, all right, no more going. You've arrived. This is the land that I will give to your descendants. And Abram has two responses. He builds an altar and he calls on the name of the Lord. Abram doesn't build a palace. Abram doesn't build a house. Abram pitches a tent and builds an altar. That's it. A place to pray. With that in mind, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. A 
Our sermon series in the book of Hebrews has brought us to chapter 11. We are now looking this morning at verses 8 through 12. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 12. Here again, the word of the Lord. My faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Amen. Well, we have had, as I mentioned earlier in worship, a beautiful series of weeks, have we not? Lord's Day after Lord's Day, we've been able to celebrate as we add new people to the role. New members who have come and professed faith and received baptism. New babies who have been added to us. I came in July of 2017, was installed as your pastor in September of 2017. Do you know how many baptisms I've done since then? Anybody been keeping count? 21. From Thea Cornejo to Shinda Gray. 21 baptisms. Did you count the pregnancies that are yet coming? And boy, wouldn't it be great if we didn't just baptize babies? but adult converts too. One of my favorite questions as a pastor is how do you build a church? I really like that question because on the one hand, I have no idea. And on the other hand, it's the answer given to us in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith. By faith in God. This is how you build a church. It's the same way that you build a career. It's the same way that you build a marriage. It's the same way that you build a family and a home and a life. It is by faith. The good news for us as the church of Jesus Christ, the good news for us as a congregation of God's people, is that God is building us a home and a family. We receive the kingdom. He builds the kingdom. Beloved, good news for us from these verses. God is building us a home and a family. And so build yours by faith. Build yours by faith. Let's look at the text together. Notice these two parts. We're introduced in verses 8, 9, and 10 to this theme of home. This idea of building a home, of finding a home, of having one. 
But then secondly, in verses 11 and 12, we're introduced to this idea of family, building and having a family. First, the home that Abraham had. In verse 8, we're told that by faith, Abraham obeyed God when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. This verse establishes for us that first essential step in the process of getting a home. How does someone get a home, a place to call their own, a place where they belong? You actually have to go. Did you ever consider that? Isn't that strange? Now, it's a lot less strange in the 21st century of America. How many of you live in the house you were born in or raised in? Okay, so it's a lot more familiar to us that to get a home in this world, I have to leave the one I grew up in. But it was a little weird for Abraham. It wasn't common then. In fact, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, do you know how most sons got a home when they got married? They built an apartment on the back of dad's house. That's how they got a home. But not so Abraham. He has to go. He has to leave. He has to believe the word of God. This obedience that Abraham exercises in verse 8 is a going out not knowing where he is going. He He does not know the destination. He does not know how long it will take. He does not know what supplies he will need along the way. He only knows that he must go. And in that process of going, God will work out the details. This is the nature of Abraham's faith. He's going somewhere and he doesn't know where. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know the means. He knows only that God said go. And so Abraham starts going. Does this sound familiar at all? This is a pretty apt summary of life, isn't it? To get a permanent dwelling in life, you have to go. Not only out of your parents' house to make your way in the world, but quite frankly, the only way to get a permanent dwelling in this place, this earth, is to go out of this earth. That is to say, you have to die. There is no way to hold home here on earth. Some of you have experienced third culture kids. Some of you are third culture kids. If you say home to me, most of you know this because you've heard my stories. I have a 500 acre farm with fields and forests that immediately come to my mind. I know what home is. I grew up on that farm. I know every tree. I know every squirrel. But so many of you have grown up here and there and everywhere. And you don't have a home. And that second group is much closer to the truth than the first. We walk in this world looking for home. But home's not in this world. We must go. This is the command given to the church By Jesus Christ in the Great Commission. We are to go. 
The life of faith is one of movement, one of progress and progression. This is spiritually true of sanctification. That the spiritual reality is, is that we must go. We must go out of sin. We must go out of self. We must go into service. We must go into love and sacrifice. It is true also of our actual life. We must go out of this world in order to get into heaven. We must go out of this life to get into eternal life. We must obey the word of God. Notice essentially that it is the word that precedes the obedience. The obedience is a response. The going that we do in life is not a willfulness. Abram didn't choose to leave Ur of the Chaldeans. God chose Abram, Psalm 105, Selection A. We do not willfully exert our plans and purposes on life. In fact, we have a cute turn of phrase, do we not? If you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. If you want to know what your future holds, tell God you'll never do A. You can be pretty sure he'll give A to you in your life. I had a science teacher in high school who was married to Walter. In college, she swore she would never teach science or marry a man named Walter. My friends, we're not in charge of our lives. We are not sovereign. We are not captains of our fate, masters of our destiny. We are covenant reactors. We respond to a God who is there. We respond to a God who speaks. We respond in faith-filled obedience. And go when he says go and stay when he says stay. Our times are not ours to manage. Our place is not ours to manage. Our careers, our home, this building of a life, it's not ours. The first essential ingredient in getting life right is recognizing it's not your life, it's God's. We walk by faith. But secondly, in stepping out into the world of faith, Abraham goes out not knowing where he's going, not knowing how to get there, not knowing what life will be like, simply responding to the word of God, simply reacting to the providence of God, letting God lead, letting God run his life, He gets in verse 9, by faith, to the land of promise. Now you would think, if this was a decent movie, like something out of Hollywood, we reach the climax. One of my favorite scenes, man from Snowy River, he's on horseback, he rides up to the top of the mountain at the end of the movie, and he spins circles on his horse, because he is home. But not Abraham. Abraham gets into the land of promise. And God comes to him in chapter 12 and says, This is it, Abraham. You've arrived. And Abraham stacks up some stones together and kills an animal and calls on the name of the Lord. Not exactly the you know, idea that we would have in mind, is it? Of, oh, I'm home. He doesn't start digging a basement. He doesn't start pouring the foundation. Abraham arrives in the land of promise and there he dwells in tents with Isaac and Jacob. He lives as if in a foreign country. 
He recognizes that even this land that is promised to him is not the ultimate reality. Yes, he has gone up out of his parents' house. Yes, he has gone out into the big world and established his place. But he has yet recognized that that career and that home and that calling is not the sum total of his life. That place where he dwells is not the ultimate reality. It is still a foreign country. And with his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob, they stand together, these three, as heirs of the same promise. That from generation to generation, Abraham's responsibility is to walk through the land of promise and never lay hold of any of it. He walks through life and God gives him blessing after blessing after blessing and he holds every single one of them with an open hand. This isn't ultimately mine. It goes to Isaac. It goes to Jacob. It goes to the 12 sons of Jacob. There's a recognition that the homes we are building, the lives we are living, the careers we are pursuing, the callings we are living out aren't for us. And they aren't about us. We have heirs to the promise who are coming after us. What we do with this building, what we do with our budget, what we do with our time and our schedule cannot be defined by us but by the recognition that we are responding to the work of God in this world for the sake of generations yet to come. We live in tents. Paul will pick up this exact language in 2 Corinthians 5. Oh, if we take off these tents and go to glory. We live in a world that we are not meant to squeeze. That we're not meant to hold fast to. We're to hold these blessings with which we are daily loaded up, according to the psalmist, with open hands. They are for one another and not just for us. These blessings that we have as we are heirs together of the promise. The most graphic and powerful image of this point is actually in the fact that Abraham dies owning one piece of promised land. It's one of my favorite Old Testament little themes or nuggets. It's the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron the Hittite, east of Mamre. You guys all know the cave of Machpelah, right? It's a great story. Abraham has lost Sarah. She's passed away. And he needs to bury her. But he doesn't own a square inch of dirt. So he goes to the Hittites and he says, Will you guys speak to our mutual friend Ephron? And tell him I need a cave. I need a hole in the ground to bury my dad. Ephron's sitting in the room. And Ephron stands up and says, Abraham, Abraham, man, just take the field, take the cave and bury your dead. You're a prince among us. We love you. And Abraham says, "Uh uh-uh. I'm not burying my dead for free. Name your price. And Ephron says, what's a cave and a field worth 400 shekels between friends? It's free. Go ahead. (laughs) Abraham counts out the 400 shekels. (laughs) Abraham dies. And the only part of the promised land he owns 
is a hole in the ground. That's it. Isaac lives his whole life. And when Isaac dies, the only thing Isaac owns is a hole in the ground. And when Jacob is down in Egypt at the end of his life, 130 years old, and he's looking at all his children and his grandchildren, this massive family that God has fulfilled in his midst, and Jacob says, you need to bury me in the cave of Machpelah. In the field of Ephron the Hittite, east of Mamre. There is Abraham and Sarah. There is Isaac and Rebekah. There I laid Leah. Because at least at the end of his life, Jacob finally realized who his real wife really was. Rachel's under an oak tree outside of Bethlehem. Leah is in the family crypt and grave. And Jacob is carried up by his sons and laid into the grave. Three generations listed here in verse 9. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They and their wives all lie together in the same hole in the ground. This monument of faith. This headstone of truth. Testifying to us through the pages of scripture. My friends... The only piece of this earth that you get to own permanently is the one your bones will lie in. That's it. That's it. That's home here on earth. A grave. It's as good as we get here. Now, Abraham embraced this life. Abraham received this word by faith. And he lived his life like he had to go when God said go. And he had to stay when God said stay. And, and he lived like he wasn't in charge. He lived like he would follow God wherever God said to go. And when he got there, he still didn't like claim the land. He just wandered around like a stranger, worshiping God everywhere he went. The one thing Abraham does, other than own a cave, is build altars everywhere he goes. Go back to Genesis this afternoon. Read each of the stories. Every time Abraham is recorded as showing up at a new place, the first thing he does is build an altar and calls in the name of the Lord. Everywhere he goes, he worships. That's it. I worship here, I worship there, I worship everywhere I go. And the reason Abraham lives like this is found in verse 10. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now this city is clearly the new Jerusalem, Zion. This city is that which we see with John in Revelation 21 coming down out of the heavens. The bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion. Its foundations are the apostles and the prophets. Its builder, however, its maker, however, is God. Abraham wanted a home. But he wanted a home that God made for him. Not one he made for himself. He wanted a home, a kingdom, a nation, a place to call his own. And it was a place that God made, the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Jesus himself will say this to his disciples. I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, would I not tell you? We have a God who is building a home for us who is making a home for us. 
We do not make our own home. We do not build our own home. We receive the one that God gave us. By faith, we receive the home he gave us. Now this is the infrastructure. This is the shape of the life of faith. To live on this earth receiving from God commands and responding obediently. Receiving from God blessing and responding generously and sharing. And the whole time fueling that obedient generosity with a hope for the heavens. With a knowledge that this life is awaiting for the city. Is an, an attempt to see God deliver the city that we are longing for, that we really want. We don't build, we don't make, we receive. But it is rich to imagine and to realize we participate with God. He is so pleased to unite us to himself by faith that we should be instruments in his hands and make of us fellow builders and makers. That in our waiting we are not idle. In our waiting, we are not inactive. In our waiting and in our worshiping, we are receiving. We are praying and we are watching God build and make through us. And there is nowhere this is more evident than in the life of Abraham and Sarah as a married couple. So consider then the building of Abraham and Sarah's family. In verse 11, we are told by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. This is a perilous verse, and it's difficult to understand. In the original Greek, it says, By faith, Sarah herself fathered a son. That is the most polite turn of phrase that I can use. The Greek verb is rather graphic and somewhat violates our sensibilities. If I were to use it, you would have awkward conversations with your children on the way home. What was that? By faith, Sarah herself. Does that make any sense? I do not think that the Holy Spirit is confused. And I do not think that the Holy Spirit is foreshadowing a transgendered movement. I think that the Holy Spirit is speaking theologically of a tremendous reality. We actually see it if we go back and read the narratives about Sarah. That time and time again, the actual story about Sarah conceiving, has it, Moses has a habit of sort of leaving Abraham out of it. And you see that here. By faith, Sarah herself received the power to father a child, to conceive seed, and she bore a son past her age because she judged him faithful who had promised. This exclusion of Abraham from the birth process I do not believe to be anatomical or biological. Abraham was part of the process, historically. 
but rather stands on the one hand as a type and shadow of Mary. But before that, and more immediately, stands as an emphasis on the importance of the marriage between Abraham and Sarah, which they were constantly violating and ignoring. What happens right after Abram arrives in the land of promise? I stopped reading in chapter 12 with the verse, and Abraham went on journeying south. What's the next story? Abraham sells Sarah to the king of Gerar, claiming she's his wife. I'm sorry, sister, not his wife. He'll do it again with Pharaoh in Egypt. Now, if you think he's a lousy husband, Sarah shows up and says, well, I guess I can't have a kid. Why don't you impregnate my slave who has no say in the matter? And I'll steal her son from her and adopt him as my own. And then when there's tension between the two women, no surprise there, Sarah reneges. You know what? I don't want that kid. He stays with the slave girl. And she doesn't adopt him. This is not a happy marriage. This is not a healthy or holy marriage. And when the Holy Spirit comes along in verse 11 and says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive... He points us to the strength of God to overcome their physical inability. He also points to their spiritual inability. The brokenness of their marriage. That of the three persons who could have protected their marriage, only one of them did the job. And it was God. Sarah messed up the marriage. Abraham messed up the marriage. Every other story... That's not an exaggeration. You go read Abraham's story. Every other vignette, anecdote, is Abraham and Sarah messing up their marriage and threatening the birth of Isaac and God directly intervening and saying, no, 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 you don't understand. This is the relationship through which I'm going to have my promised one. In fact, Abraham and Sarah aren't the only ones to live like this, are they? Every single descendant from there, they all show up in Matthew's genealogy. Time and time and time again, generation after generation, humans do everything in their power to jeopardize the birth of Jesus. And Matthew's genealogy makes plain to us that they can't thwart the plan and purpose and promises of God. That God again and again and again intervenes in history and says, No, I'm bringing my son into the world and I'm going to save you. What a beautiful picture. That Abraham should be called by God into the marriage. The one to which he must be faithful. It is Abraham and Sarah. One man, one woman. Exclusive and devoted. That is the rule of that relationship. And from it we must learn this lesson. That if we are to be partners with God in this world, watching Him, receiving from Him, the building and the making of that heavenly city, to be united with Him in His labor, then we must honor the rules of the relationships that He has given us. When we live like adulterers and fornicators, 
both literally in our sexuality, but also spiritually in the way in which we treat each other like we don't have a relationship with God, in which we become practical atheists and idolaters, in which we violate the sanctity of Christ and His church laid out in Ephesians 5. We become those who are not partners with God in this building of the church, in this building of the kingdom. We resist the work of His Spirit to our own frustration and to our own harm. We cannot thereby thwart the promises and purposes of God. But just look at Abraham and Sarah. We can make for a painful, sorrow-filled life. Beloved, we are called to live by faith. To see God working in our world, building out of this world a new world, based on love and grace and peace. We are to join Him in that labor, honoring the responsibilities of our relationships, reverencing His law and wisdom for how to love one another. But Abraham himself also gets his turn. Sarah, who by faith was herself the one through whom Isaac would come. Even as Abraham prayed, let Ishmael stand before you, God's answer was, no, it is through Sarah. It is through your marriage that I will give you seed. This is the nature of God's work in the world. That he has laid out the rules of our relationships. And we should honor them. This is how we build our families and our homes by faith. But then in verse 12. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead. We're born as many as the stars of the sky. In multitude. Innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. This now famous metaphor is drawn from two different stories. God comes to Abraham, he appears to Abraham, and he says to Abraham, right after Abraham has given up the grazing rights to half the promised land to his nephew Lot. Arguably the better half, the lower green valley by Sodom and Gomorrah. Right after that, Abraham is standing on the hilltop at night, and God appears to him and says, Abraham, don't worry about the half of the promised land you just gave up. You're getting it all. And what is more, you're going to have descendants. You know what, Abraham? Here's what we'll do. You start counting stars. And when you get to the end of the star count, I'll tell you, okay, that's the number of kids you're going to have. If you can count stars, you can count your kids. He then shows up again and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and give you the land. And Abraham says, how's that, how's that going to work out? All I have as an heir is this servant, Eliezer of Damascus. And God says, no, 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 not Eliezer. It's going to be Isaac from Sarah. It's going to be through your marriage, through your normal relationships, through your honoring of the rules of community and relationship that I gave you. I'm going to call you into your ordinary life. And there you will serve me in your time. And he says, Abraham, look at the dust of the sand of the earth. How many grains of sand are at the beach up there in North Shore? How many grains of sand are on the haunt? I mean, can you sit there and sift through? 
How many grains of sand came in on your kid's shoe yesterday? Salt, snow. And yet God says it's a number that cannot be counted. You can't count the size of God's family. It's innumerable. It's uncountable. Abraham, you stand in a line and lineage that is not of flesh and blood, but is of faith. To make this point that it is not about Abraham's ethnic descendants. It is not about Abraham's nationality. The Holy Spirit says in verse 12, from one man and him as good as dead. It's not about his biology. It's not about sharing a genome. It was by faith. By faith his children came into the world. By faith they grew up and multiplied. And by faith they were united to God in faith. But I also love that having repeated again and again, by faith Abraham, by faith Sarah, in verse 12 the Holy Spirit says, Therefore, from one man. By dropping the name Abraham, the Holy Spirit calls our attention to the true Abraham, the real Abraham, the one man who was as good as dead. He lay in the ground for three days, and through him, there is an innumerable family of God. Let me put it this way. When you look at Abraham building life and building a world, a home, a place, a dwelling, a career, a calling, you come to the end of the Abraham story and you realize very dramatically he owns one thing when he goes. A grave. That's it. And when you look at the family of Abraham, and all the children and all the descendants that are supposed to come from him, he has one. One son. That's it. And when he lays in his hole in the ground with his wife and his son and his son's wife, sounds like Noah in the ark, doesn't it? And his grandson and his granddaughter, by marriage, we suddenly come to the clearest view of family we should ever have. When we're all done, we only own one piece of this earth. It's a grave. And when we're all done, we only have one family relationship left. We're siblings. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the only relationship that survives death. When you see a man and a woman at the front of the church and they say, till death do us part. That's because death parts them. Jesus says there is no marriage or giving in marriage in heaven. But we are united to Christ by faith. And when we at last use and possess the one piece of this earth that is permanently ours, a casket and a headstone, we have finally come into the family for which we were looking and waiting. A family of nothing but brothers and sisters who are united to Christ our head, who has adopted us into his father's family forever.
This is how we build our home. Looking to the heavenly reality. This is how we build our family. On the one man who is as good as dead. We build our family on the truths of God in Christ. Cultivating those relationships of love. Loving as we have been loved. The good news for us today, friends, is that God is building us a home. The new heavens and the new earth. The new Jerusalem. The good news for us this morning is that God is building us a family. The family of God. The brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ adopted into His house. And so we should love one another and work together in this world in a way that honors that truth. That is to say, we should build our homes and our families by faith in God. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these beautiful truths. We thank you for this beautiful passage. We thank you for our beautiful Savior. We thank you for the Jesus who has established for us the hope of heaven and has even given us this foretaste today that in the worship of you, we might taste and see you are good and learn to trust in you. Our Father in heaven, we ask that what we have heard would remain in our minds and sink into our hearts and transform our lives, that we might be made in the image of God and remade in the image of Christ, walking in righteousness and holiness before you. We thank you for these great blessings and ask you to bless us again in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.